Hello, and welcome to TLF Gems, a podcast about customer experience and insight from TLF Research. I'm Stephen Hampshire. And I'm Greg Roche. And in this episode, we're going to be discussing a recent article uh, which looks at the relationship um, between customer satisfaction and the cost of capital. Now, that's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, we think of lots and lots of different metrics where, you know, can you prove customer satisfaction works? What difference does it make to the bottom line? What difference does it do to this, to that, to the other? I think this is the first time I've come across anything saying customer satisfaction and the link to the cost of capital. Mm. Do you want to just um, give us a little bit of an overview of where the article, what, what the article was getting at? Yeah, I'll do my best. I mean, it, it, it's quite a technical article. We'll put a link in the show notes. And frankly, I'm not by any means a financial expert. So a lot of it went over my head a little bit. As you say, it's a slightly, it's interesting to me, I think, because it's it shows a, one of the mechanisms by which customer satisfaction contributes to financial performance of a, of a business, but it's one that isn't, doesn't usually come up very often in the literature, which is effectively, what does it cost an organisation to get investments and to sort of get money from investors? So the, the cost of getting equity capital. Yeah. Um, and what do the links show? And in a to, to sort of very short and quite a long and technical article, in a nutshell, customer satisfaction, so specifically this is ACSI scores, but customer satisfaction... Just for people, that's American Customer Satisfaction Index. Yes, good point, thank you. Uh, so customer satisfaction is effectively acting to sort of improve the reputation of an organisation and therefore to reduce the perceived risk for investors and therefore makes equity capital cheaper to access which would make sense intuitively and um, but from <laughs> what i could see and again it's yeah probably not one of those articles that we would actively encourage people to read but it does have the maths and the science behind it and and you know it does prove the linkage mm. uh you know the linkage there which is always one of the you know you know the challenges yeah, it, it is. And, and I do think it's important to, to point out that it is only one of many, many mechanisms that add up. And I, I think really that's probably the wider point I want to, to discuss is when people say, can you link satisfaction to profit or to, to financial outcomes? The answer is yes, but it, there's never sort of an X and a Y. There's sort of 50 Xs and 50 Ys. So it always gets very complicated. It is a very careful piece of analysis. Uh, as I say, in, in many, much of it goes over my head, frankly. But what I, I do think it, it comes down to is something quite logical, which is satisfaction is a big part of the reputation of a business, how we judge whether a business is a good business or not. So yeah. should I invest in this business? Yes, because they've got really happy customers. Should I invest in that business? Well, maybe not, because their customers don't seem very happy. That's perfectly logical yeah. and straightforward. Yeah. The analysis proves that, but the, the logic kind of underpins it um, that all of us can understand. Yeah. What, say, it's unusual to see it for, 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 from this angle. Um, more traditionally, you'd sort of see other sort of links of trying to link it to sales, profits, cost, share price, and, uh, uh, and things like that. And, you're, and what you said there about it, it's never quite as simple there are always all lots of different X's and Y's that lead to Z's that lead to A that goes back to X. What do you think are the, are the right links for an organisation to 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 at least start thinking about when they're going down this this, this route? Yeah, well, I think that's a really interesting question. My instinct is that share price is probably a mistake for almost everyone because share price is driven by so many 
other factors that are kind of out of the control of everyone involved you know so it, it, it's affected share price is almost uh, a measure of how the stock market sees an organization and that, that is at some level going to be influenced by customer satisfaction and really that's that's one of the things this article proves in fact is that investors are influenced yeah. by customer satisfaction yeah but it's such a the links are so difficult to prove because the the entity that has a share price is so rarely the entity that a customer is having a level of satisfaction with or, or having, having the experience it, exactly. with. Yeah. so yeah it, yeah because for, for all sorts of complicated reasons that you know yeah, they, yeah, they yeah. may not be listed on a road so let's say you're thinking about uk customers yeah. is the company listed on a uk stock exchange often not it, you know it's often owned by some massive company over in america or wherever mm. is it actually part of a group of companies and it's the group of companies that is listed on the stock market and in which case how do you sort of unbundle all that how, how would you aggregate mm. from satisfaction scores of all yeah. these different companies are having a relationship all these different brands with a big holding company with a thought price so it's it it almost never works because it's so complicated and there's so many problems so what does work if share price doesn't work well so okay let's forget about share price and then you have a really interesting question i think is like what what can you link to and i think probably most people would say that the answer you want to link to is profitability because effectively for me, the reason for investing in customer satisfaction is that it leads to higher profit rather than that it necessarily leads to higher, higher revenue. The rationale for a loyalty strategy is that you don't need to buy customers by lowering your prices. You get a hold of good, loyal customers who will choose you anyway because you're meeting their needs better than everyone else. So for me, therefore, profitability makes much more sense than revenue. But that then raises interesting questions about well, what do we mean by profit and how can we measure it? Yeah, to sort of build build on that, I think most people at first link it to sales, don't they? Well, if we have more satisfied customers, traditionally they will you know, buy more, you know, become less price sensitive, buy other products, offers, and, and, and link it into that sort of um, sales side. Those who perhaps are a bit more experienced do definitely see cost savings. You know, we do work, with, you know, with a, you know contact centres and customer support centres who who can absolutely show <laughs> dissatisfied customers call in a lot more, cause time, call effort. You know, are much more costly to service, and actually the most efficient way to service customers is to have satisfied um, customers. You know, and that's just one little example of of, of a load of sort of um, cost savings. But in terms of the the, the, the the phrase you use there, a loyalty strategy, I think that's really interesting. A colleague, <laughs> you know, of mine has has moved um, jobs, um, or a, a colleague, you know, client who, who's become a sort of pseudo friend, and his new job title is customer loyalty director, mm-hmm. and it's the first time I've really heard the word loyalty in there, but I like it. Loyalty is I having like a bit it. of a resurgence. It, it, it's really interesting. So we we probably would have focused on loyalty really i'm really from from when i joined tlf and and it was bound up with all that service profit chain stuff and i think the idea of a loyalty strategy is really baked into that but then over the years i i and i've sort of gone on this front before i think on the podcast but over the years i think as an industry customer experience lost sight of that strategic focus on loyalty and became very focused yeah. on the sort of the operational transactional that's, that's okay you know we, we need to do that we need to create good customer experiences day to day that's how you do it but yeah it, what's it for 
is is that more strategic focus on loyalty i think yeah there seemed to be a lot more sort of you know a decade you know ago service profit chain and and, and actually our you know our old friend customer lifetime value which still to this day i think you and i would think is one of the most underutilized tools Absolutely. ever and in a nutshell it's because it's hard the example you were giving before about cost i think was is a really is really interesting because it's usually the easiest link to prove between satisfaction and financials is actually on the cost because it you can yeah. link from this specific customer was unhappy with this specific you know moment in the transaction and then they phoned in and then they made a complaint and then they left <laughs> you know so we we can sort of track that through yeah you can sort of put a price on all those things relatively easily the more complicated side of customer lifetime value for me is understanding you know, as Reichel spelled out, you know, in, in his early books, that kind of growth over time. So over time, you get the sort of retention uh, benefit, if you like, of keeping a customer and that sort of ticking away. They're buying the thing you do every year or whatever it is. But then are they buying more products? Are they becoming less price sensitive, which is a, a careful one we might need to come back to? Are they referring other people? Yeah. And if we're counting, do we end up double counting if we're not careful? Because who gets the referral benefit? And so it, you just have to be very, um, it gets complicated quite quickly. It does. If you want to work out the exact figure, you know, we researchers, we like figures, we like things to be right. But I think sometimes it, it's just taking people on the principle of seeing, you know, as a customer, you are worth more than the X pounds you spend with us this year. And it's just getting people to think about that and realize that and just taking them down the steps of, well, let's and this is one of the things where, I, I mean, I think, you know, MPS, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's created such an interesting part in our industry because it is asking a loyalty question in the most simple way. So it is saying loyalty is better than satisfaction in some ways it's become a satisfaction um, of the you know measurement and there's a whole sort of debate you know a debate on that but you know things like recommendation are so powerful are so financially viable uh, so no, not viable good you know if you can get people to recommend whether it's b2b where you can win some significant business through people moving jobs or recommending or in the world of consumer where obviously sort of mps was born as well that recommendation if anything that should have highlighted a bit of loyalty <laughs> that beyond satisfaction but in some ways it hasn't yeah and I, hey i was on a soapbox there steve and that's your role in the podcast to get on the I, soapboxes. I think you're absolutely right though i think organizations still if, if you ask them to value their customers almost all of them i think would do it by what they spent this year not by what they spent over their you know history with us and what might they spend in the history going forward and i think that's really interesting isn't it if a, if a client sort of or a customer you know floats in and spends you know big bucks in the shop that's great but then if they go off to another shop okay well that was a one-off big spend but what about the customer who comes in every week and spends 50 quid with us every week forever who's actually worth more yeah well i, I mean the, you know we go into the whole area of you know stickability and customer movement is it just your competitors and things like that i i often tell the story about my 
mother and my brother. Uh, my mother would be a very traditional character who would watch the same TV channels, same newspaper, same routine, and very much sticks with companies. And uh, my brother would be a complete switcher, would completely change at the drop of a hat. It still surprises me that when they come to interact with companies, let's say insurance companies or something like that, that they get treated the same because one's business is much more valuable to win than the other one. And the other one's actually probably going to cost you money because you're only going to keep my brother for about a year and there'll be a load of setup costs. So that front end of even profiling the customer saying, hold on, this, you know, Greg's mother is worth having because we get her. Why don't we do things to try and keep her? Like offer, uh, you know, this or that, not even financial things, a different level of service or, you know, I'm glad to see you've been a customer with us, you know, this many years, Greg's mother, you know, recognize that verbally and things like that. That would be a strong financial case. And actually, my brother, you want the competition to have him. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things, a few um, issues ago in Customer Insight, we had a case study um, contributed from Igloo Energy. And I really enjoyed right. it, actually. And, it, and what I liked about it, or what I particularly liked about it, is because the energy sector is so traditionally price-driven, isn't it? It's like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Every, everyone knows that they end up chasing you know, people who are price-driven, but they, they can't resist it. <laughs> they end up doing it anyway. And, and Igloo, to an extent, you sort of have to a bit in that market. But they've kind of deliberately set out a store to say, that's not what we want to do. We want to attract customers who are going to stick with us for a long time, effectively, as a loyalty strategy. And that means our prices are not going to be the cheapest. They're going to be cheap, but they're not going to be the cheapest. And, yeah, you know, the, the sort of quid pro quo is that you're going to get brilliant service from us. And we really are going to look after you. And beyond that, we're going to help you kind of manage your energy use and and Dot, dot, dot. So there's other things baked into that. But I think yeah. the basic principle of we're not chasing new customers on price, we're chasing customers we can hold on to. And yes, the price has to be there or thereabouts in order to do that. But we're motivated by that idea of loyalty, I think is it's something that is still too rare because it's it's it feels risky. Um, I don't think it is really, but it feels risky. Yeah, I mean, there's back, quite a few different markets where people have tried to differentiate themselves on service. I mean, Metro Bank a few years ago was 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 one in the financial services sector. Uh, yeah, and there's the, the, lots of kind uh, of know, challenge brands that was going to have a in financial position. services now, um, particularly with the way it's been effectively opened up. So, uh, we, funnily enough, we've got a case study forthcoming yeah. uh, in Customer Insight with Starling Bank, um, who've, who've done some really interesting stuff. But right. yeah, there's lo- lots of industries, I think, are ripe for disruption by people who are willing to, to sort of take that more, in my view, more enlightened sort of loyalty strategy approach. And by definition, a little bit more medium-term approach. That's not a quick win strategy. You, you know, that's not a buying market share strategy. That's a, we need to give this a decade strategy, but we can disrupt this mm-hmm. market. Um, just jumping around slightly, question we're always asked when it, you know, when it comes to things, don't I just need to be better than the competition? Or are we sort of now starting to touch on, well, who's your competitors today, might not be your competitors Well, there's today. a couple of things, isn't there? So the, first of all, to some extent, that does work. Like, yeah, if, if you're the, the best of a bad bunch, you probably get a lot of the benefits of being the best of a bad bunch. It does mean you're you're sort of um, vulnerable. You know, so someone else could come into that market and 
rip it apart. And I, one of the things I think is really interesting is the way, let's say, supermarket brands entered financial services um, a few years ago and picked up a lot of customers. And obviously, they're not, they're not doing any of the financial services stuff. <laughs> they're not even running the contact centers or you know the customer service bit of it. All they're doing is providing a trusted brand and insisting that their customers are served to a, a certain level. And I think that's been a really interesting effect to watch, you know, how a brand that customers trust and looks after its customers can, again, again sort of almost overnight totally disrupt, say, the credit card market or the insurance market because of their investment in their relationship with customers and the sort of the trust yeah. that's been built up by that. The other thing I think about being best of a bad bunch is you're not getting the cost savings of really great satisfaction. But imagine if you were world-class in a bad bunch, the bad bunch wouldn't be around for much longer. You know, you could really dominate that situation. And while that might be anti-competitive, that would seem like a really good, you know, best of a bad bunch is, I think is a very limiting strategy that isn't, it's just not supportable over time because the bad bunch won't stay a bad bunch. Either they will improve or someone will join I think as bunch. well, people often forget about as you mentioned cost savings, so, you know, other than having happy customers who will choose to do business with you, that's great. Okay. But being better about a bunch means you probably win the competitive battle. But what, you know, you mentioned costs. So there's other benefits of having happy customers. But what about your people? Do your people go to work to be the best of a bad bunch? They love dealing with complaints and unhappy customers, and it, it must reassure them knowing the competitor staff are even more unhappy than them dealing with more complaints. Yeah, I think there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of arguments for being not just the best of a bad bunch. Now, I think to be fair, no one thinks they're being the best of a bad bunch as a strategy. I don't know, I've never been in a board <laughs> where people sat around them and said, yep, yeah, we're, we're number one of a terrible, terrible sector. <laughs> Go us. So no one wants to be, no one thinks they are. I sit in boardrooms where people have taken comfort yeah, from that. But position. I think they wouldn't say we're the best of a bad bunch, or at least yeah. only if they were being provocative. Yeah, yeah. What, what they probably would say is something like, it's just not practical in this sector to achieve the kind of levels of satisfaction that we're seeing in, in some other sectors. And here's the reasons for that. And it, that's just the nature of this industry. That's what they say. Isn't it? Yeah, that, yes. We'd probably be thinking those reasons sound a little bit like excuses. Let's but, say, uh, for example, but they will be tangible. They will be tangible reasons. At so that look moment. at the UK Customer Satisfaction Index and Without even checking, I bet you could tell me the order of the sectors, give or take. I mean, you, you might not know precisely, but you know which sectors are near the top, which sectors are near the middle, and which sectors are near the bottom. Why is it that, let's say, yeah. transport, telecoms, utilities, public sector are always down towards the bottom? Well, actually, forget public sector. Transport, telecoms, utilities, why are they always towards the bottom? Well, I'd go a lot down the co-creation argument, not just the setup cost argument. You know, the organisations at the top of the league table whether it's the personal services, the retailers, they really understand their customers because they are very much there when the customers are seeing that experience. The staff understand the customers, the managers understand the customers. And yes, they're often highly competitive, so customers can vote with their feet. But I also think those some of those other companies are just not close to their customers. Therefore, they don't get the customer feedback that lets them influence behaviors and cultures and that's not a criticism that's a fact they're just further away 
And there are some players in those industries that, that do get close to their customers and therefore just see the world through their customer's perception much better. One of the things, if you look at the UK CSI um, sectors, within every sector, there are organisations performing well. And absolutely, absolutely. you could argue that's best of a bad bunch, but actually the best of those bad bunches is usually pretty good. <laughs> like they actually are, they're not just the best of a bad bunch, they are best in pretty much any context that you want to put them. Uh, and often there's something slightly different about them compared to the rest of the sector. So it, it might be a disruptor brand in financial services that it perhaps doesn't have the legacy of having to support loads of branches around the country. It might be a train or company that only takes you from a station to Heathrow, for example. You know, th those things arguably make it easier. But as I've said before, you know, you, you have the customers you have and your job whoever they are, is to make them satisfied. It's interesting when you talk about disruptor brands and market change. I have the pleasure of living with two teenagers <laughs> and they do see the world different. They really do in terms of brands, brand loyalty, non-brand loyalty, and their whole sort of shopping experience of buying and returning online versus physical you know it's you know and covid is one thing that i'm sure has accelerated this but i i, I yeah i mean we should call the title this podcast best of a bad bunch not really what we're intending to talk about but that scenario is not going to last much longer now. no i think that's probably really right isn't. because i think increasingly if you see a sector where it's that kind of situation where no one has very happy customers, that's ripe for for jumping into, isn't it? Like, and and the people who jump into it, it could be you know a plucky entrepreneur with a bit of backing, or it could be Amazon, or it could be Tesco. I was thinking of so, Amazon. You know, it, it can be disrupted in one of three ways, but but one of those people is going to take over that market. I I, I I was talking to someone, you know, Amazon, you think, you know, what do I use Amazon for now? You know, it used to be shopping, it used to be books, <laughs> moved to shopping, videos and films. My um, my home security is mm. Amazon. <laughs> and you're thinking, that's how, and they do it great. They do it exactly to the high standard of everything else. It's dead easy, it's dead intuitive, it's very competitively priced and it's easy to operate if you are in any market and you're not terrified of amazon as a potential competitor then you need your head examining i think oh. um, other than some really mega specialized ones i mean if, if you're manufacturing yeah. nuclear reactors then you're probably all right but but you know, <laughs> almost every market i think is, is potentially vulnerable okay so the question asked a while ago about do you need to be better than your competitors i think the answer is um today yes but tomorrow mm -hmm. you need to be better than everyone else yeah so. i don't think you can ever go oh we're we're number one so therefore we're okay okay well very interestingly this started on metrics yeah. and, and 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 you know and seeing the value of a, a you know a customer and i suppose just to end on on the, the, the Amazon example. Um, I've never spoken to anyone at Amazon, but I tell you what, where I've complained that a delivery didn't arrive, they just instantly refunded mm. me. What great customer service. And I'm slightly horrified to find the delivery had arrived and one of the children had taken it and felt very guilty. But what great customer service. They, whether or not they've worked out, they understand lifetime they value, that, don't they? They understand lifetime value, yeah. So for the sake of, you know, a, a 10 quid book or whatever it was, is it worth upsetting Greg who spends 
I'm not even going to ask you how much it is every year on Amazon, but it's going to be a big number. <laughs> and they managed the cost process because the investigation for a 10 quid book <laughs> and did it, did it not, this, that, all those sort of things, you know, would have taken any margin out of it at all, at all, at all. Just a really good commercial decision on exactly. their part. And they've got a customer who's just doing exactly what they want, recommending them mm. now to others. Yeah, and I think that's a really good way to wrap it up, actually, Greg, with an example in Amazon of a company that really does seem to understand customer lifetime value, whether whether or not they sort of articulate it and measure it in those terms, and acts on it, you know, treats customers on the potential value to the business, not that particular transaction. Absolutely, absolutely. So thank you all very much for listening. Uh, if you're using iTunes, please subscribe, rate, and review us. And if you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at TLF Research or at tlfresearch.com. Thank you, everyone. Mm-hmm.